Hello, I'm Marcus Stuttard. I'm the Head of AIM and UK Primary Markets at the London Stock Exchange. Um, this is part of our Be Inspired series where we talk to founders and CEOs about their experience of being listed on the London Stock Exchange. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Gordon Sangera, co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanopore Technologies. Gordon, it's great to be here with you today. Could we just start, um, please, with just a brief overview and background of what Oxford Nanopore Technologies does? Sure. Um, morning. Welcome to our building, finally. We've had a lot of uh, email exchanges, but not met face-to-face. So Oxford Nanopore was spun out of the university 17 years ago. We've been selling products for seven years. We have created something from the university, commercialized it. It's called a single molecule sensing platform. It has a capability of being able to read the source code of living things. So that is a technique referred to as DNA sequencing. It's a very new method very differentiated from the existing systems, and it enables affordable, accessible DNA, RNA information. And to just to put that in context for you, so during the pandemic, we all learned about how the COVID genome mutates over time. So we need to know locally in real time. And the way DNA sequencing works today it's very much like computing in the late 70s, early 80s. It's a mainframe platform. So it requires multi-million dollars of capital equipment and multi-million dollars of infrastructure. So it's really the preserve of the rich nations. Lower middle income countries really struggle. What we've been able to do with this new measurement platform, this single molecule sensing platform, is to create a device that is the size of a Mars bar, if you like. I've got one here, the palm of my hand. This is a thousand dollars. Inside here, we add a sample and we can start real-time streaming DNA, RNA information. And then that plugs in via a USB That's right, cable. it plugs into a laptop, so anybody who's got an internet connection can look at the data that's being generated. And again, to make it real for you, in 85 countries, this has been used to sequence COVID genomes. Over a million genomes have been sequenced, and it really allows the affordable, accessible access to DNA RNA information, which is the source code of all living things. So prior to you developing and, and miniaturizing that, people were using much bigger machines. Is that, is that right? The market today is still dominated by what you would call the mainframe centralized sequencing centers, but they are the preserve of the rich nations. So if you look beyond that and think about disruptive technologies and how they leapfrog. So for example, Think about mobile phones. Cable and wireless was just bypassed in places like India, and companies like Hutch became the biggest mobile phone company in the world. So this is a leapfrog technology that now enables not just those who are sequencing superpowers, if you like, but a much more accessible democratization, akin to the way we saw the PC and that um, uh, revolution in accessibility of computing. Now, in addition, we provide this information in real time right. at your fingertips, which is kind of, you know, the tipping point for the birth of the information age. At the heart of what you've just said is, is your objective of enabling people to analyse anything 
anywhere. That's right. The company's goal is to enable the analysis of anything by anyone, anyone. anywhere. It was the anyone that's that right, was. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so what, what this device has enabled people to do is to go out to the Arctic and look at melting ice shelves and they found new viruses that have been locked up for many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. It's been used in the space station. As I said, it's been used at the forefront of uh, the recent pandemic, but also in 2015, when we first launched the product, we were there at the back end of the Ebola crisis, Zika in Brazil and Southern America, and now with this. But it's not just about infectious disease. If you can interrogate the source code of living things, you can garner phenomenally powerful insights. What is this thing? Is it diseased or healthy? How is it changing? How is it responding to changes to its physical surroundings like treatment, drug treatment and efficacy, predisposition to diseases? All of these things are wrapped up in our source codes. And you know, I mentioned the information age. This is really the, the sort of beginning of the genomic information age. And it has been 20 years for, since the first human genome was mapped. It took 10 years and cost three billion. Today, a couple of hundred dollars gets you a whole human genome to give you a sort of sense of the pace of innovation. Oh, that's fantastic. And actually just that context of not just being in laboratories, but being you know, on ice shelves or on the moon just really, I think, brings to life the mobility of the solution. Yeah, the mobility and real time. time. So if you think about, there is going to be another pandemic, I'm afraid. It's not going to be a doomsayer, but, and it will almost most potentially likely be antimicrobial resistant superbug. You know, we hear about MRSA and these superbugs. Those countries which have distributed surveillance networks and pick up these unusual mishmashes of viruses, as we saw with SARS-CoV-2, and see it early and put those fires out and contain and control. And ultimately the vision is that will be a global network, but right now within country and the enlightened countries post pandemic who are enabling these networks will be the ones that will fare best when the next um, uh, virus or bacterial pathogen hits. What excites you most about the use cases for the technology? So I'd like to just talk thematically about three things. Firstly, we already talked a little bit about the pandemic. We were there for Ebola, Zika, and the recent pandemic. We will be at the forefront. And, and as I've said, those countries that have surveillance networks distributed will be best placed. Yeah. Um, the second thing, I mentioned the, the 10 years it took nearly 20 years ago to sequence a whole genome. At Stanford, some researchers using nanopore sequencing, so our platform, were able to take a newborn and sequence them same day, from sample to answer. The sequencing time to read the human genome was two and a half hours, but they read it 60 times, so you can correct any errors if you only read once one copy. That's a genome every 90 seconds. So that really gives you an idea of the pace at which this innovation and the real time works. And so that 
allowed them to, to work out the, the type of epilepsy the newborn had and were able to treat it same day, which is fantastic. And last but not least, there is a growing movement around cancer. So we all know about biopsies and traditional scanning technologies. Before the biopsy lump appears, you can see signatures of cancer DNA in blood. So you can take a blood sample and you can do early diagnosis of cancer. It's called liquid biopsy. And we envisage a future where anybody and everybody will be routinely monitoring for these signatures. Because if you could pick cancers up at stage one, stage two, your five-year survival rate is 80, 90%. Stage three, stage four, it's 30, 20 to 30%. So next pandemic, diagnostically hard to diagnose newborns and liquid biopsy cancer. These are three areas that are gonna be phenomenally interesting and evolving in the next five years. And Nanopore will be central to really helping in pushing those technologies forward. That's incredible. It, it, I mean, the data that must then be generated, it, the, the growth in that data is just sort of exponential. And, and presumably that gives um, you know, researchers a whole set of data sets that they've just not had before. Yeah, so the, the thing about nanopore sequencing is it completely gives you a, in the context of a human genome, you're moving from grainy black and white, which is what the traditional mainframes do today, to high definition color. And we envisage, if you think about those rare diseases like that newborn, we envisage all that data being publicly open sourced. So all the rare disease specialists around the globe can sequence whole genomes and cross-reference and be able to rapidly diagnose. And some of these newborns, three to five years, are on a diagnostic odyssey for three to five years trying to figure out what's going on. So yeah, these are some of the things that really excite me about our technology. And, and on, the, on, the, on the cancer front, you know, presumably in terms of patient outcomes, the research is a, a lot less intrusive. And, and so there's some of the side effects of um, of operations are minimized as well it will all absolutely catch cancer early and you know the outcome rates are so much better i mean it is just the beginning of that journey we're in the foothills of the sort of whole understanding around liquid biopsy but it it, it does you know having a sort of bottom-up approach thousands of researchers can really interrogate this new emerging field versus large centralized you know small number will also help catalyze the, the better understanding of this DNA information and really catalyze that genomic information age. I, I, it really is fascinating as, as a complete layman, um, just hearing some of these insights and the developments that are taking place. It just sort of fills me full of inspiration and hope really. Thanks, I mean, for us, we do this every day and we get a little bit blase, but, and, and you know, these are three to five years away. It's not gonna happen next week, but. You know, these are some of the exciting things we think about as we peer into the sort of medium term. When we first spoke, it's probably over 10 years ago, you, you have all, and the team, you've always been very clear about your objective of building a global business in Britain. How has that objective uh, impacted the way that you've grown and funded the business? We were very honest when we set the company up in 2005, we said this was, 
whilst the technology is phenomenally disruptive, there was actually a lot of development work and R&D to do. So we talked about five years to seven years to get the technology ready for commercial use. And that really switched off quite a, a lot of typical VCs who are servicing a three to five year fund. Yeah. Um, because their model is just different. That's not a criticism of VCs. It's just, so we were able to sort of garner from very early on what is today very uh, trendy moniker of patient capital. It just naturally landed. We filtered out the, the sort of traditional VC. So we had this nice long runway and over the years, we started with some visionary London investors like Pete Davis at Lansdowne um, uh, and others. An IP group, obviously, were a spin out from that, Dave Norwood and Alan Albury. But that has evolved over the years. And if you look back to a year or two pre-IPO, we had quite a global register. You know, Sovereign Wealth Funds, Singapore, Tencent in China, US funds, still, you know, strong London shareholding as well. So over that 15 year journey in the, in the run up to the IPO, there was a real evolution of our share register during that period. I think I'm right in saying that although the shareholder register really evolved, you've always been very keen to keep the, the capital structure quite simple. Is that right? That's right. So we don't, there were never any preferences, uh, which, you know, can protect founders and the initial shareholders. But we, you know, we looked at that and we felt it was actually a barrier to high growth with patient capital because it can be a break because those preferential shares can be a blocker for new investors. So you kind of, it was very much a, a philosophy that we had that we're all in it together. So we all evolved the share register and the share price together. And, and, and there's no, um, you know, it's a very democratic share base. And then moving closer to the IPO, um, in, in the ITF, you set out a number of objectives from, from going public around things like continuing to increase the visibility of the business, having uh, access to a broader and wider set of investors, being able to use the listing to uh, help incentivize and, and hire and retain um, key talent. A year in, how do you feel that the listing has supported some of those goals? We listed after 15, 16 years being private. So all good things come to an end. There's patient capital, right? But at some point, you know, you have to, to move to the next step. And the state of the technology, the maturity is what I mean by that, and, um, uh, and the use cases and the number of countries we were in and technology validation phase was behind us. So it was a natural evolution to become a listed company. And um, one year in, it's been a pretty difficult capital markets uh, journey. But, you know, at the, the moment we raise the money, um, the markets are in a good place. We felt we had a good price. And even, you know, in this difficult time for capital markets, 
we've been very pleased with the visibility, the shareholders we've attracted. And, you know, a real bonus is, two bonuses. One, customers find a degree of credibility from being public. You know, these are highly sophisticated people, so it's surprising that they, but they do. And also attracting top talent has been much, much easier being in the public market. So there's a lot of benefits and, and bonuses to evolving to where we are. And it's our honeymoon period still. It's only one year in, but so far, so good. You've talked a couple of times about the evolution of the business. On a more personal level, I mean, you've been with the business from the, the right from the start, from the co-founding through to now being the CEO of, of a public company on the main market. How is that, how's your role and how's that changed for you? I think there's two things. Um, if you do it in the football vernacular, right? Can you take a team from the fourth division or let's just use Brian Clough much better, right? Can you take a team from the second division and go and win, you know, the premiership, which is what he did with Nottingham Forest. It, it's always been how far can we take this? And the transition to the public markets, it's different. Um, and, but it's, it's more structured. So in some ways, it's, a, it's an easier calendar to manage because you know where the you know, update points are. And in between, actually, you're not saying very much. So it is actually freed us up and given us more bandwidth to focus on the business, which I know a lot of people say, oh, it takes up much more time, but we've not found that. But then the last couple of years as a private company were pretty tough. And it was partly through the pandemic as well. And we felt the last three or four years, we were permanently fundraising. So it's quite nice to get that done and then update um, uh, on a regular basis. More pressure because we are providing forward-looking guidance, which you don't have to do in the private domain. But, uh, you know, as I said, we felt the business was at a mature enough point that we could, you know, make those estimates on forward-looking guidance on revenues. And I guess, I mean, that, that pressure sort of partly is the flip side of the visibility you talked about earlier, visibility not just with investors, but also with, for um, key stakeholders and, and clients and, and people who are you know, your, your own customers. Yeah, yeah. and it's, I guess it's a different pressure, you know, moving from private to public. There are a set of eyes on you, you know, it just evolves. And, you know, in the 17 years, the people who we were answerable to at the beginning, it's very different to those after year 10 and 15. And as we head to year 20, it's a different set of, of people that, you know, that we're telling the story to. But that has remained a constant and consistent. Gordon, thank you. Thanks. Thank you uh, to our listeners for, uh, for listening in, for watching um, this interview. For you know, any further interviews, we have a range of Be Inspired interviews on our Spark platform, which is available on our website, londonstockexchange.com. Mm -hmm.